Hi, everybody. So, it's a brave decision to come to church. Yes or no? Don't feel it's particularly brave? How dangerous and disruptive can God be, do you think? You know, it's just, it's interesting, isn't it? It's, uh, <clears throat> you know, when we gather we, and we want to come and meet with God, we're hoping that he would be aligning us, aren't we? That he would be recalibrating us, he would be acting upon our lives, and that when you get around Jesus Christ, that things might be different a little bit later in the day. Isn't that what we would hope for? I mean, actually, let's just realign ourselves, recalibrate ourselves right now. We actually, would we like him to, to do that for us right today? Would, would that be possible even today? You know, when you read the Gospels, you read about Jesus walking around and saying things and doing things, people's ended their day differently from how they started their day. Right? And this is also what we should be hoping for in our day. And, of course, as Christians, we're, not, we're scattered servants as well, as Alan Scott's been saying. By the way, you don't have to come Tuesday night, Wednesday night, and Wednesday morning. You can choose one of those three, okay? Um, but, uh, you know, we're, we go out as scattered servants. We are representing Christ out in the marketplace, at the school gate, at the, in the school, at the workplace, uh, wherever we might be. But also when we gather, wherever we are, whether we're meeting with God on our own or meeting with him together, we should anticipate some change and results from doing that. Now, moving as a church, just, just before I get to the passage, as we have done to meet on Sundays here in this building, is squeezing us. The space is tight, yes? It's tight with the children's work. That's why we had all those notices about your coffee. So it's squeezing us. Now, there could be different reactions to that squeezing. We're in that pestle and mortar, as Nathan was saying. There's different reactions. Though one reaction could be to get as comfy as I can, as quickly as I can. Um, uh, but, but, it, but the other reaction could be, how does God want to change my shape? How does he want to realign? How does he want to recalibrate, even in changing our physical circumstances? Because God is at work in our circumstances. And so he's doing something and want, this is a disruptive moment for us as a church. And we can either get, try to get past that disruptive moment as quick as we can to return to how things were, or we can seize the moment, seize this disruptive moment and see how does he want to reshape, how does he want to recalibrate us, because it could be really different. So Alan Scott encouraged us to pray the prayer, Father, would you disrupt my life in a way that leads me towards the lost? Father, would you disrupt my life in a way that leads me towards the lost? Why don't you just pray that with me right now? Father, would you disrupt my life in a way that leads me towards the lost? Anne told a story, Anne Wilson, last week of how God disrupted her life to lead her towards a lost person. And many of us experience those things. Because we begin to realise that as far as Father God is concerned, he's not really interested in us and our, our ideas about how to look good. He wants us to engage us in doing good in the world. And we're called together to do good. Jesus never asked anyone to agree with him. He asks us to follow him. You can agree with someone just in your head, but to follow involves your whole life. So we want Jesus to be at home here at, on Sunday mornings. We also want outsiders to feel at home here on Sunday mornings. And are these in conflict? We can feel those things are in conflict. But I don't think they can be in conflict because Jesus loves being around outsiders. He was always trying to get away from the insiders to get with the outsiders. So he won't feel at home anywhere where there aren't outsiders there. 
Isn't that true? So, that, so to be a place where Jesus is at home has got to be a place where everybody would feel at home. They might feel challenged, they might feel a bit scared, but in some way they're going to feel that there is radical inclusivity available to them in Jesus Christ. And I want to read a story today from one of the Gospels, from Mark's Gospel. It's towards the close of Jesus' life, in the last few days before he arrived at Jerusalem where he knew he was going to be crucified. And so he's on a journey up so that there's a, there's a map here. Uh, he, he was on this journey, here's Jerusalem here, and he's on this road coming down from Galilee, and he's, it, we're going to read about when he arrived and le- left Jericho on the way. So he's about 15 miles away, 15, 20 miles from Jerusalem. And, uh, and so we read that then they came to Jericho, he was walking along with his crowd of disciples and a crowd of others. And as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Say that with me. Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the way. Father, we want to ask you that today we would receive sight. Lord God, we may not be actually physically blind, but in your eyes we are definitely spiritually blind. And we want to pray that our eyes would be opened freshly to see as you see, that we may be changed. You might recalibrate us, you might realign us. We place ourselves in the mortar or the pestle, which is it? The pestle. We place ourselves in the pestle and we welcome your loving care as you bring your mortar to bear upon us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Who said these words? Cheer up. On your feet, he's calling you. Who said that in this story? Who said it? The crowd. The crowd said that. But this is the same crowd who just a little while before had been saying what to Bartimaeus? Shut up, just be quiet, you plonker, or whatever. They, they'd, been, they'd been telling him off, they'd been rebuking him. What a change of tune take, took place for that crowd, hey? From, from consistently really belittling him, telling him to shut up, telling him, you're, you're an outsider, would you just keep out of this, stop spoiling our party, um, keep out of the way, get out of the way, we don't want you, uh, we'd have no place for you here. Suddenly, they change their tune. I want to think about the crowd first off this morning. You see, Bartimaeus' shouts were embarrassing them. They were embarrassed by Bartimaeus' shout. He wasn't embarrassed, but they were. It's always good to think about that when you're feeling embarrassed. Who's actually feeling embarrassed? It's a good question. Because we will sometimes say, oh, that person's embarrassing themselves. What we mean is they're embarrassing us. And and we need to get real about those things. Bartimaeus' behaviour is unseemly, he's unsophisticated, it's uncool. I mean, if it, sometimes in church we have somebody lying on the ground and they're crying and crying or maybe wailing or something like that. Maybe, I've met people who said, I went to this church and somebody, and it was awful. 
w- why was it awful? What's your, what was your, who, was it awful for that person? Did you go and ask them? It's a good question to ask someone in that situation because it could be they're being troubled by an evil spirit, in which case we can deal with it. Okay? But often when you ask people, yeah, it's a good question to ask, is this good or bad? They'll say, oh, it's very good. And you realize, actually, this is very good what's happening. We're embarrassed. We're, we're thinking, oh, how awful this is. But God is doing something really good in that person while they lay on the floor and they cry. And he's setting them free. And he's doing something good in their lives. But we don't see it because we're embarrassed. That's, we don't want to be that kind of crowd, folks, do we? That's not the kind of crowd we are. We're the people who say, no, you, go, you, you meet with God. So Bartimaeus was in trouble because of religiosity, because of the religiosity of the crowd. And whenever we're embarrassed about someone else's zeal to meet with God, we probably don't realise just how hardened our heart has become. And when we let religion shut us down, we're closing the door on God's glory because, you know, the person lying on the floor crying and wailing, that attracts the glory of God. It attracts the glory of God. You know, Jesus loves the queue jumper. He loves the person who desperately wants to meet him. He loves Bartimaeus because Bartimaeus cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he kept shouting it out. And and friends, okay, I'm not saying you all have to shout, but friends, maybe we should shout just a little bit more because we can be so English and British and, and calm and quiet. You know, the, uh, and the other thing about this crowd, this crowd was saying Bartimaeus' no for him. As far as they were concerned, Jesus should say no to Bartimaeus, right? So they were telling him, shut up, Jesus should be saying no to you, but he isn't bothering, so we're going to say no on Jesus' behalf. Right? We've had word this morning about the people out in the street that, that, that God wants to put into the pestle uh, who haven't yet come into this pestle, but God wants to put them there. And we might think, oh, we, I'm not sure we want them. We might say, no, would you please be quiet? Stay out there, like the crowd was saying to Bartimaeus. But as far as Jesus was concerned, he wanted Bartimaeus in the pestle as well. Let's not say people's no for them. You see, we, we can say, oh, well, Bartimaeus, he doesn't look like a likely candidate. You know, we can look at other people. I remember um, recently my daughter... And I know Pam and Magnus were up at a wedding in uh, Nottingham. And I, I think uh, Adrian and Stephanie were there as well, of a person who used to be a member of our church called Analia. And I remember when we first had contact with Analia, which was through Little Fishes, I think, the toddler group at that time. And, and then she was invited along with her husband to a meeting about an alpha course. And I remember sitting in this alpha course while the speaker was speaking and I'm looking, occasionally looking at Analia's face and thinking, oh man, this is going down like a lead balloon. And, uh, you know, the person was speaking and her face looked, uh, I just thought, she is not enjoying this. She is, she, this is, this is, and I was like begging God saying, please God, would you speak to her because she does not look like she's enjoying this. And in my heart I was kind of almost saying her no for her, uh, for this thing. And it got to the end of the talk and the guy said, guy called Nick he said okay if anyone wants to sign up for the alpha course come to see me now and she got straight up and went over and signed up for it you see you can't tell by looking at the outside of someone what God is doing in their heart right you can't tell now Bartimaeus was doing all that shouting and stuff but if he'd just been you can't tell necessarily what God is doing in someone's heart so people who are looking for God don't look like they're looking for God always right but they don't 
but we mustn't discount them. We, it, there's a grave danger that, that we're the crowd and we're coming between those lost people that Jesus is uh, wanting to call and Jesus himself and we discount them. We, we, look at, we, we, we decide they're not the right sort of material to go in the pestle. We're fools, dear friends, right? It's not for us to decide that. Jesus is the one who decides who goes in the pestle. And so we should open the door wide. We should practice that outrageous inclusivity which Jesus offered. We have a commission to go and offer the gospel freely to everybody. And there's no shortage of the seed, so we can scatter it everywhere. You might scatter it on that hard path and it may not bear any fruit. Well, it doesn't matter. There's plenty of the seed. So scatter it uh, far and wide. Time and again in the Gospels, the crowd of people following Jesus ended up being like a barrier to the people around that Jesus wanted to reach. You read story after story, you'll find this. And so it behoves us, if we're people who want to follow Jesus, to think, man, am I being a barrier? Am Am I participating in such a way that I and being a barrier. Because that day, that crowd was a barrier to Bartimaeus. They were belittling him and really telling him he has no place there. Jesus, on the other hand, he modelled a missional life which was really honouring of people around. He didn't belittle. He didn't bring down. He scolded the religious people, but, uh, but otherwise, he built people up. You know, honour is the choice to magnify another person's worth above their weakness. Honour is the choice to magnify another person's worth above their weakness. Jesus looked beyond the weakness. He looked beyond all the rubble in people's lives for the gold that was in there and for what he saw, his vision of their future. And uh, that enabled him to attract uh, the presence and the glory of God and the mercy of God to people. So if you are here today and you are a follower of Christ. We are something like this crowd. Let's make sure we're not like this crowd in the way this crowd behaved because we want to be uh, at the place where people feel free to meet with God. Yes? This is a place where people are finding freedom to meet with God. And so uh, Jesus is winsome and we see how um, when Jesus eventually hears the cries and it says he stopped... It's not that he takes over at that point, okay? He doesn't take over at that point. I was down in our coffee shop downstairs the other day and a customer was complaining to some of the staff and I was tempted to go and take over and deal with the complaint. But I let them, I watched how they dealt with it because that was a better thing to do, I chose. Later on, I did go and speak to the person. But sometimes we, we kind of take over, you know, oh, nobody else can do anything. I'm the only one who can do anything properly and blah, blah, blah. But even Jesus didn't. I mean, he is the only one who can do things properly. And yet he didn't take over. He actually says to them, call, he says to the crowd, call him. He, he's, he's wanting to disciple the crowd. Look, you've stood in the way uh, and now I've heard this crying. Now you go and call him, right? He engages them in that thing. He's engaging us as well. He's saying to us, call him, call her. He's saying that to us, call him, call her. Right? And you're, you're being, you, each of you are being invited. Look me in the eye. You are being invited. Call him. Call her. He's inviting us in that. And so they completely change their tune. And, uh, and, um, so, uh, and we are uh, engaged then to, to do that. And, and, and so we're not, um, we're engaging with Jesus' outrageous inclusivity. And as Alan Scott's quotes from Acts 15:19, where the, um, I think it's the Apostle James says, it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. 
It's my judgment we should not make it difficult for the people of all the nations who are turning to God. It's our role not to make it difficult. That crowd acted to make it difficult for Bartimaeus. How stupid is that? And yet there's something uh, that can happen in us which ends us up acting in that kind of crazy way. So when we, uh, as we've been talking about, thinking about, say, meeting down in Revive on Sunday mornings down in the coffee shop, we had thought we might do that once in October, but I think November might be the first month we do that. That's going to be a really radically different place to hold a meeting, okay? And I know some have said to me, cool, how's that going to feel? What's that going to look like? And I said, well, actually, we did Alpha courses several times at the Taj Mahal um, Curry House in Adelstone. And, and we would be at the back and we'd be giving the Alpha talk and at the front there'd be other customers eating their meals and stuff like that. It, it can work, you know. Some, I remember one occasion one of the customers complained to the restaurant, but it, we were already there when they came in. The, the restaurant owners should have told them we were there. And, uh, and that's how it goes. And that's using, you know, the Taj Mahal. So we can do it in our own place for sure, okay? Because <laughs> we, uh, uh, we can do this. But it will have to be very different. I wonder how different it's going to be. I actually haven't a clue. The preaching need to be different. The, the worship, I guess. Not that we don't want to, Jesus to be welcome there. We absolutely do. We want the glory of God. Right? But the, the presence of the Lord, he loves lost people. He doesn't feel at home at places where lost people aren't there. So, so to make him at home, this, it's just going to be so exciting and quite difficult to work it out. So that's, that's going to be an interesting journey. We've been propped in the pestle to be mixed up, to have a different shape. I want to put you on alert. This is going to be difficult. It's going to be a bit painful. We'll get things a bit wrong and we'll have to adjust. Are you ready? So, so what do the crowd who've previously been uh, 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 kind of telling Bartimaeus, shut up, stop it, you're not, this isn't the place for you, keep out of the way. And then Jesus tells them, right, call him. What do they say? They say these wonderful words, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Cheer up is a phrase that elsewhere in the Gospels is only spoken by Jesus. It's only in Jesus' mouth. This is the only time anyone other than Jesus says, cheer up. It's some of your translations say, take heart. It's like, be of good courage would be an old-fashioned way. It's the, the word like to do with courage. In other words, be confident. And because um, they'd been telling him up to now, you, you should be really unconfident. I mean, you shouldn't, but you don't belong here. I'm surprised you dare lift your, uh, you open your mouth and say anything at all. Right, they've been saying that. Now they've completely changed their tune. They're telling him, you can be confident. And then they tell him, on your feet. Come on, get up. On your feet. And why can they say this to him? Because there's something significant has changed in their understanding. They've realised something. What is it? He's calling you. That, that's the thing that's made the entire difference. They suddenly realise, oh, Jesus is interested in Bartimaeus. We thought he wasn't interested in people like that. How wrong they were. Right? And so they can now say, he's calling you. Well, because of that, you can be, take courage, you know, be of good cheer. Cheer up. Get on your feet. Because he is calling you. How, what an amazing message. And the message, this has come across even in our worship this morning, in some of the prayers, in what uh, Duncan prayed. God is calling us. He is calling us. That's amazing. And so, 
we can take courage. We can get on effort. We can start moving. You see, at the beginning of the story, it says about Bartimaeus that he was sitting beside the roadside. It's literally by the way. There's a double meaning in this because in the early church, the way meant the Christian way. It meant the way of following Jesus. He was sitting by the way. But when the passage ends, it says he followed Jesus on the way. He moved from sitting beside the way to following Jesus on the way. That's what everybody is invited to do. That's what Jesus is calling us to do. He's saying, come, follow me. Don't sit beside the way any longer, but come and follow me. And the way, even the fact that he's calling us, actually that empowers you to start walking on this way. It's like your legs are strengthened and you're given power to walk on the way. So we must not misunderstand grace, because sometimes we think grace, it means it's all of God and that people can just stay sitting beside the way. No, they can't. They must get up and they must follow. I don't, don't ever deceive someone that they should just stay sitting. No, they, everybody must get up. His invitation is, come, follow me. Stand up, get on your feet and follow me. And so it's, it's not some kind of automatic thing that you are uh, uh, transported. You must get up. Announcing the gospel to people is to call them to follow Jesus, to get up and follow Jesus. But to do that on the basis of this, he's calling you, he's calling you, I believe he's calling you. He, he, you didn't get a friendship with me by chance. He's calling you, right? And now let's consider the blind man himself, Bartimaeus. Now, it's interesting. Most of the miracles in the Bible, we don't learn the name of the person who was healed because we know that Jesus healed literally hundreds and thousands of people. And so it would be very... Uh, they probably didn't remember. They didn't have, you know, smartphones. That There probably wasn't somebody walking around logging or healing number 358. <coughs> and logging all the details. Um, but the, most likely the reason that his name is here is because Bartimaeus ended up being, being quite important in the church in some way, the early church. And so he was probably telling this story quite often. And so they actually knew that this story related to actually Bartimaeus. Now in Matthew's Gospel we realise there was, there was two blind men who were healed that day. He, he tells the same story, there was two. But Mark focuses on Bartimaeus. Maybe Mark actually knew Bartimaeus, he met him. So that's why he tells this particular story and he gives the name of the man. And uh, we read that he was outside the city. He was kept out of the city. Very often there was judgment against people. You know, in the Old Testament, you were not allowed to go into the temple if you had some kind of um, disability. You were excluded from worship because of that. And so he, he would have felt quite excluded by uh, the Jewish religion. And so he was outside the city, as people maybe often were. And he was sitting by the way. And... Uh, he would have had his cloak out. You, as I understand it, Jericho is too warm to wear your cloak. Your cloak was what you wrapped yourself up in, in night, at night. But if you were a beggar, especially if you were blind, you laid your cloak out near where you were begging and then people tossed their coins into your cloak. You know, like the buskers in the underground, they put their guitar case open, you throw your coins into their guitar case, you threw it onto the cloak, then as a blind person, he could reach for the corners of his cloak, collect it up and then get all the coins and collect them. So this would be the situation he was in. And it says, when he heard, verse 47, when he heard that Jesus was passing by. You know, he, uh, people who are blind, as I understand it, have keener sense of hearing. When you lose one sense, the other senses start to become more acute. I guess your brain logs onto them more. So 
he would have been someone with very acute hearing, most likely. He heard that Jesus was passing by. And surely, he'd, because he starts calling out, why on earth would he start praying like that unless he had previously heard stories of what Jesus did? It's impossible. That you wouldn't even start calling like that. You wouldn't start naming who the person was. And you wouldn't ask for mercy from that person if you had not heard stories. So as he sat beside the road, apparently blind, apparently cut off, apparently irrelevant, because he was blindness, blind, his hearing was acute, and he'd heard people saying, reporting stories. Friends, it is so important that crowds tell stories. That we repeat good stories of what God is doing. Because you know, when you tell a story, a seed is dropping in someone's heart that can, can prepare them for a day when they might shout out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And so we tell people, we can tell people at school or at work the story of how God rescued us from that fear or how he set us free from this, that or the other or, or how he answered prayer and provided something or protected us in a situation or how he opened this door or whatever. We tell such stories and we don't have to end the story saying, OK, now what about you and stuff? We, don't, we just tell the story and leave it be. Let that seed germinate and it will come that day when like this man standing beside the road And he suddenly thinks, this is the guy I've heard those stories about. I am going to ask him for mercy. So we need to be telling more and more stories and to keep repeating stories. We need to repeat stories. Will you do that? You know, we we waste our stories of what God does. We don't notice what God does, does quite often. We pray, he answers. We barely notice, we don't give thanks for it and we don't tell the story. What fools we are. Why don't we get the goodness of those? Remember and forget not his benefits, the psalmist said. Psalm 103, let's tell the stories. And as Alan Scott's encouraged us, these stories are so helpful to us. And he says, instead of gathering on Sundays to get a story, we gather to tell a story. So when we go to our small groups and our connect groups, let's gather, tell the stories of what God is doing. I commend my own small group leader, Helen, who so frequently asks us in our group meeting, okay, what has God been doing? And we are in surprisingly silent because we just, we don't notice enough what God is doing. So let's open our eyes and tell those stories. And he prays out, Jesus, son of mercy, have mercy on me. He'd worked out that Jesus had some kind of messianic calling, maybe, um, but he certainly knew something about his own need. You would have thought he'd be crying out, help me with my blindness or something like that but he asks for mercy it's curious he doesn't ask for help with his blindness he asks for mercy something has happened in this man that he knows that it isn't that his biggest problem is not his blindness it is his need for mercy what an amazing thing to have seen what a remarkable thing that he should have understood that that he needed mercy The crowd had judged him unworthy of attention. But he is not kind of focused, oh, they mistreat me. And he's not focused on his, his, you know, taking the hump about the crowd. No, he's not. We can so easily lose what God is doing in our lives by taking the hump at other people and how they behave. Do you know that's a massive distraction for us and keeps us from, from engaging the grace and goodness of God. And he doesn't take, and, but he focuses, he, he realizes that whereas God looks at him, his biggest need is mercy. That he needs mercy. That if he cannot have mercy, then he is lost. He is truly lost. He probably doesn't understand. I, I remember I didn't really understand. I, I kind of had some awareness, 
But it was as I continued to walk with God, I realised how deeply I needed mercy. But just a little inkling of a sense that you need mercy is an important thing. The person who, a- who accepts no guilt can receive no forgiveness. The person who accepts no guilt can receive no forgiveness. But here was a man who accepted guilt. Uncomfortable, unfashionable in our day, but he recognised it. And so he was praying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And so this appeal for mercy stopped God. It says Jesus stopped, didn't it? This is a famous preach, I've forgotten the guy now, that we, some of us heard many years ago, the shout that stopped God. And Jesus stopped. Do you know Jesus will always stop when he hears a cry for mercy? Because Jesus is the dispenser of mercy. From, from the heart of Jesus flows the incredible mercy of God. The Apostle James says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Don't you thank God for that? What are, what are three words that are so important? Mercy triumph forwards. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Oh, thank God for that. Thank God for that, that we can appeal to God for mercy with hope that that appeal will be met with the offer and the, the gift of mercy. Those that appeal for mercy, that shout, just it, it attracts the glory of God. It attracts the presence of God in his incredible mercy. And so the crowd are able to say, cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. And, and we, read that he's, we read, first of all, throwing aside his cloak. Right? Throwing aside his cloak. There, there with the coins he'd collected so far that day, the cloak that would keep him warm at night, he throws it aside. What an amazing thing. Do you know there is, to follow Christ, there usually is something we need to throw aside. Some comfort thing that we have put our hope in, that we rely on, something that's very important to us. It's not that he, God wants to hurt us. He does not take from us to make us poor. He takes from us in order to make us rich in some different way. And there are things that we need to leave behind. A cloak is often something we hide behind. It is something maybe we depend on. It could be, you know, we have stories in the church of people leaving behind their alcohol dependency. They get up and they get away from it. It could be promiscuity. It could be control issues. It may be that you've been embedded in a kind of grief over something that was lost and you just hold on to that grief and you hold on to that grief and God wants to say, no, it's time now. You're going to get up. Leave that cloak behind. Leave that cloak behind. It may be some way of getting provision that's rather dishonest that you've relied on that dishonest way of making provision. You're not confident you can actually get money into your life by working or something. You've relied on this dishonest way and God's saying, no, you you can stand up now. You can leave that cloak behind because he's calling you, see. Suddenly the impossible is becoming possible. That which wasn't possible, that which you needed before, friend, you don't need it anymore. The day will come when you realise, no, he's calling me. I don't need that anymore. I can leave that cloak behind. I can get up. And so he gets up onto his feet. And um, because he, because he realises Jesus is calling him. And Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? Time and again in the Gospels, we find Jesus asking this question. And time and again, we can think, what a stupid question. It's like blatantly obvious. But of course, it isn't blatantly obvious. Many times, 
We are clinging on to that cloak. We don't want to let it go. We are, we are determinedly not letting go of that cloak, whatever it may be. That thing, that blindness can give us an identity. It gives us that ground. We've got a lifestyle. We've, for years and years, I've sat beside the road begging. I didn't need to go to work. I didn't, you, you, you might be saying I'm characterizing this badly, but actually people become familiar with that certain way of life. They're very comfortable with it. I can't tell you the number of times I've been in counselling situations and we've gone through, met with someone a few times and we've worked out what it is, some issue in their life that they're falsely holding on to. And they see it for the first time. You say, okay, let's pray now. And you're going to, I'm going to pray, then you're going to pray and you're going to renounce this thing. You're going to lay this cloak down. And I pray, then they pray, they pray a long prayer and they don't renounce it. And, and so you just gently at the end say, do you know, I was, I'm, thank you for your prayer, but you know what we talked about you were going to do in this prayer? You were going to renounce that thing. Uh, you, you didn't do it. But do, you, do you want to do it now? Because you don't have to do it now. Maybe you want to do it another time. But, but that's the next step for you, is to leave the cloak behind. And people have to be ready to do that. And Jesus' call makes that, t- makes that opportunity. It empowers us to leave the cloak behind. And so uh, everything becomes possible when his call comes. So, uh, he, so he threw his cloak and he jumped to his feet. He came to Jesus. Well, that's the best thing you can do. He received his sight, yes. <coughs> but plenty of people received healing from Jesus but didn't follow him. Do you remember the ten lepers? All ten were healed. Only one came to give thanks but we are very clearly told that Bartimaeus followed Jesus he, he gave up being the victim that he'd been for years sort of living under that cloak of I'm the victim I'm the poor sad blind person who must beg and now he's taken authority in his life he's going to walk now he's going to follow Jesus he's going to follow Jesus into all his purposes for him and as I say the fact that we know his name probably means he was well known in the early church. Cheer up. On your feet. He's calling you. I wonder today who he's calling. You're receiving some, some, some wisdom and faith even today that you would step up out of something. Maybe for the first time you would follow Jesus. Maybe you're a regular part of the church here and you're just realising, wow, I wonder if I'm a barrier. And you're just wanting to make yourself available to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm ready for the disruption to stop being a barrier. I'm ready for that. Bartimaeus was shouting. I suppose I could ask you to shout. But how about I just ask you to put your hand up. If you you want some mercy of him, if you say, yeah, I'm going to let go of that cloak. If you want to say, yep, I'm ready for the disruption, to pray that prayer, Father, would you disrupt my life to put me in the way of lost people? Then you you might want to raise a hand or turn your palm up or something, whatever. If you want, you can shout. Maybe for the very first time you want to turn and follow Jesus. You've been sitting beside the way. Maybe you've been coming to church for a while, sitting beside the way. But now you want to say, no, actually, I'm in. I want to follow. I want to get on the way and follow. And Jesus is saying, cheer up. 
on your feet. Because I'm calling you. So I receive your presence, Holy Spirit, for us all. We, we, we feel and welcome your desire to recalibrate us and realign us today. We thank you that we come to one whose words are more powerful than any other words. So we hear so many words, so many cursing and negative words, but we come to one who has the authority to actually summon us out of darkness into light, to, to actually empower us to lay down those cloaks and to rely on you. So by faith we, we come to you afresh today. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father God.